mean we must be increasingly on the alert to prevent them from taking over other mineshaft space in order to breed more prodigiously than we do, thus knocking us out through superior numbers when we emerge. Mr. President, we must not allow a mineshaft gap. Sir, I have a plan. <laughs> Monsieur has been Hello and welcome to How Wrestling Explains the World. I'm Nick Bond, he's David Gibb, and this is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies. So I'm really happy we have that song this week. Uh, I mean, we're going to have it every week, but this week in particular is a great week for this song to be the theme of our show. Oh, yeah? Why do you say that? Well, I mean, the album did come out last Friday, so that was one plug. Mm. And then a second plug is that I'm interviewing my friend Dylan, who's in the band, for next Monday's Let's Not Talk About Work. So it's a double plug situation. That was why it was really great. Uh, But Double sexy. (laughs) Oh, and and speaking of plugs, uh, I should say that this is part one of two uh we will be talking basically about how the cold war is explained by wrestling and how on the second half we'll be talking about how the cold war gets involved in wrestling uh so at some point the episode will just stop um and you'll hear uh fade out to dog of war again so um yeah, uh, but also it is uh, with the quote we used, I think, like really encapsulates our topic this week, which is the Cold War, which for me in researching this, it's the most wrestling thing any human being has ever done. Yeah, I would have to say so, even just from the outside. In fact, you and I were born kind of at the very tail end of, of what would be the Cold War. I mean, the USSR was kind of falling apart in the late 80s when you and I were born. But I almost think that uh, we're kind of in the age where we're uniquely qualified to kind of look back on the Cold War as a whole. I think we're just old enough that we actually have the context for it. I think that some folks in their teens and even early 20s now uh, don't really even understand what it was all about or how serious it really was. But at the same time, we have the distance where we didn't live through it and you know weren't actually scared uh, that we were going to get nuked any given day like my mother was. Yeah, we didn't have to put like our legs between our heads. I, or sorry, our heads between our legs at any point. We just like heard that somebody had to do that. Maybe like an older brother or something like that. Like I, I have a quasi older brother. We grew up together. Uh, and like, I think he might've had to do that, but he's like five years older than me. It was like, he, cause he was going, if he can put his legs between his head, he might have a career in show business. <laughs> sorry, that's really funny. Now that we've established this week's episode, I also wanted to explain that, um, Last week's episode, while wonderful and we're very proud of it, uh, is going to be way, way different than this week's episode for a bunch of different reasons. But structurally, it's just going to be we're not going to spend that much time talking about what is or isn't wrestling. Everything on this show going forward will be very wrestling, right? I think that's fair to say, like, we're not going to do like this is the ways in which unless it's a surprising thing that's not wrestling adjacent but that's like a waste of all of our time yeah i think the title how wrestling explains the world kind of grounds us in stuff that is related to wrestling exactly is related to wrestling so like if you were hoping to i don't know like have a jackson pollock episode that's probably not going to happen if you want to hear about william faulkner you're going to have to find another podcast which actually (laughs) william faulkner makes me think of um 
what's uh, our next week's episode topic, but also my favorite Venture Brothers joke. How'd it go in there? Oh, not well. It was all sound and fury signifying nothing. <laughs> I was literally thinking about that episode just the other day when uh, when I was starting to prepare for our eventual Venture Brothers episode. Yeah, not just that. It, it, it works for the Faulkner reference, but it also is about the, like, failures of the jet age to give us what we want yeah and the uh the other great thing about venture brothers other than the faulkner jokes um and the cold war references is uh that they do a very good job of establishing like i guess you would call it faces and heels like the the good guys are the osi and the bad guys are the guild of calamitous intent right is that a fair way to put it yeah absolutely i think so I mean, I think that the the terms heel and babyface were borrowed into wrestling from uh, the vaudeville stage, if I'm not mistaken. And it goes back to like the uh, like the old style vaudeville traveling plays. And the heel was like back in the day, it was almost like the Snidely Whiplash character from Dudley Do-Right or whatever, where it was kind of the stereotypical menacing person who was going to assume the role of, you know, uh, every bad, low down, dirty thing you could possibly imagine. Whereas the, the baby face uh, was, was the hero who was going to save the day and was called the baby face because, you know, they were, they were kind of squeaky clean. They were, they were uh, someone who was uh, transparently presenting qualities that were supposed to be good, even if they weren't necessarily three-dimensional about it. Yeah, that's a, the three-dimensional thing I think is really important because as I, I realize as I say it, that like, no, some of the guys in the OSI are actively bad people and not just, like, the moles in the OSI. And, like, some of the people in the Guild of Calamitous Tent, although most of them are actively terrible people, aren't, like, bad guys. They just, like, uh, Sergeant Hatred, which we'll get into um, next week, is part of the guild of calamitous intent but he wasn't necessarily a bad guy he had a major flaw but he wasn't like a bad guy his goal was like to be especially when he like turns face like he's not fundamentally a bad person there's a difference between being like a heel faces like goodness and badness are relative to the person i think and that's part of what makes being like when we talk about especially in this episode i get the feeling just based on who we're going to be talking about there are going to be people we disagree with like you and i disagree with or that we agree with that we think are heels and people we disagree with that are faces right I, it, it's imp it's possible to disagree with somebody and still think they're like a baby face yeah sure you can still think that they're a principled per person who wants to stand up and represent a certain group in a way that makes everybody feel good but still not agree with them. The the opposite of that is like one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Like the WWE sells t-shirts with bad guys' names on it all the time. And Stone Cold Steve Austin, who's like technically one of the biggest baby faces ever, was also just like a bad guy. He was a bully, like, but he was bullying somebody who was the biggest bully. So it made it okay. Right, exactly. That was kind of, a, I mean, there, there's a whole spectrum of moral relativism. It's not just like, there are good guys and they're always good and perfect and there are bad guys and they're always low down, rotten and bad. As we get farther and farther into the Cold War, you start to notice that that gets more and more blurry. Uh, but for me, the real start of the Cold War is when the Russians got the bomb, which uh, happened on September 23rd, 1949, with this statement from Harry Truman. And it's maybe my favorite quote in this entire episode, because this is the entire statement as far as I can tell. 
we have evidence that within recent weeks, an atomic explosion occurred in the USSR. The eventual deployment of this new force by other nations was to be expected. This probability has always been taken into account by us, which is to say they literally knew that they were eventually going to get the bomb and we're just kind of like, eh, they got the bomb. What are we going to do about it? But that's not what happens. What ends up happening is they basically get run out of town. Uh, between that, between the Russians getting the bomb and the Korean War, Truman doesn't really get out of the Rose Garden with his campaign. He, he loses in the primary as a Democrat. He doesn't even get out of the Democratic primary, despite the fact that he's basically the two-time incumbent president. And Eisenhower and company... Uh, completely destroy him, uh, make Truman look, and the Democrats by extension, look completely feckless on the Cold War, which is weird because if you look at the Eisenhower accomplishments during the Cold War, they're not insignificant. But if you look at them relative to the Truman accomplishments, they are. Like Truman actually pushed back the USSR in ways that Really, the Eisenhower administration just talked about it. And and part of that is because, well, they had the nuclear bomb. They got the bomb in 49. But part of it is that that was kind of the strategy. They really rode uh, what I guess a nice way to call it would be suspicion about communism in the United States in the 19 or late 1940s and early 1950s was a problem. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, when I, I studied film for several years in college and I, you always, you can't talk about film without talking about the Hollywood blacklist, which was like, uh, you know, uh, the, the house on American activities committee, uh, was calling in all these folks in Hollywood because they were, uh, they believed that Hollywood was infiltrated by communists who could become parts of some sort of, uh, deep state communist propaganda plan. All of this is because of guys like Nixon, Richard Nixon, for, uh, future president, and uh, I, a superstar in this episode. Some would say <laughs> the greatest heel in presidential history and easily the worst person I can think of to serve in public office in the United States is Joseph McCarthy because he's just a bad person. And all they're doing is being dastardly heels. They're they're finding ways to like make themselves look good and get over at other people's expenses. It's like I like I said oh, yeah. like I said at the top of the show, there's a lot of wrestling stuff in here, but Nixon and McCarthy are like the quintessential heels. One thing we talked about in the, the last episode a, a couple of times that came up is that like as big conceptually and geographically and population wise as the U.S. is, we've never really had kind of this one unified identity. And I think anti-communism was one of the best and most effective efforts to ever kind of define what it meant to be an American. Now, I don't mean best in terms of good because you're absolutely right. A lot of the anti-communism was just like pure heel tactics, just painting, you know, uh, your enemies as these kind of dangerous others and portraying yourself as the kind of, you know, the, 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 the light of hope. When I talk about the Hollywood blacklist earlier, when they were calling all these different actors and directors and, and writers uh, in before the House Un-American Activities Committee to ostensibly uh, rat out communists, what they were really doing was trying to make teams of good guys and bad guys. And the good guys were people like uh, Ronald Reagan and Walt Disney, who were willing to name names and, you know, promised to have nothing to do with communists. And the heels were people who just wanted to maintain privacy. I mean, some of them were communists, but for the most part, it was like, 
these people don't want to be snitches. Therefore, they're evil. Yeah, that's what's real. That's what when people talk about, quote unquote, McCarthyism, that's actually what they're talking about. We'll get into like the difference between communism and Stalinism and whether or not we believe it to be like reasonable some of the stuff they were doing there's a reason that like the most famous thing associated with joseph mccarthy is do you have no sense of decency like <laughs> like that while he's talking to the army like he he did not learn what nixon learned which is that you always need a worse guy than you like McCarthy was the worst guy because what ends up happening with Nixon and you'll see it throughout is he ends uh, throughout the cold war. I should say he ends up like positing himself as <laughs> I guess the nicest way to put it is only an anti-Semite, not an actual crazy person <laughs> because Nixon, he said a lie. I don't know what was in his heart, but I'm pretty sure it was vehement anti-semitism well it, it's hard to look at the people who the anti-communists targeted and not notice that many of them were jewish or many of them were either european immigrants or first generation americans from you know from those eastern european countries from russia from poland from even germany i mean that's what's really interesting is on one hand the cold war is kind of portrayed as the next chapter in american history after world war ii and they're like two separate things but actually a lot of the same issues that kind of remained unresolved after World War II actually continued into the Cold War. And, you know, it, it wasn't you couldn't just say uh, we should really be thinking about limiting the immigration of these European Jews, because now that was transparently evil. Right. We knew about the Holocaust, so we couldn't say those things. So the folks who had that in their heart, as you say, now said, we really need to stop these communists from Eastern Europe from infiltrating the U.S. And to be clear, this isn't just our us guessing like, oh, they didn't like Jews. Um, one thing, there's the Dillingham report, I believe it is. The Dillingham Commission report, it's from the early 1900s, that basically uses scaremongering to be like, we need to stop pulling in people from Eastern Europe. And, and Southern Europe, which is basically like the Greeks, the Italians, and all of the Jews. Like that is literally Russians, the whole thing. The other thing is Nixon is so anti-Semitic, it's almost unfathomable. Here's just like some of the quotes from, these are from the New York Times and the Atlantic. These aren't from fringe places. Um, uh, a moment later, Nixon returned to the Jews the Jews are just a very aggressive and abrasive and obnoxious personality. Here's another quote. What it is, is it's the insecurity, he said. It's the lame insecurity. Most Jewish people are insecure, and that's why they have to prove things. Nixon, here's another line. Nixon also strongly hinted that his reluctance to even consider amnesty for young Americans who went to Canada to avoid being drafted during the Vietnam War was because, he told Mr. Coulson, so many of them were Jewish. I didn't notice many Jewish names coming back from Vietnam on any of those lists. I don't know how the hell they avoid it. If you look at the Canadian-Swedish contingent, it, they were very disproportionately Jewish, the deserters. And here's my favorite. This is from The Atlantic. On the tape, Nixon said he wants to fire garment for what he felt was an undermining comment, yelling, God damn his Jewish soul. So, like, Nixon... Yikes. Yeah, Nixon is a vehement anti-Semite and uses that as a uses com anti-communism essentially to 
push an agenda. Uh, Joseph McCarthy just wanted to get famous, basically. Yeah, he wanted to be on TV. Yeah, which is why he didn't last and Nixon did. But I think it was also that, to be honest, Nixon thought was much more in line with what people actually wanted. Like, we love nukes. And we always had like uh, there's a book I read called The Culture of the Cold War and seven almost 70 percent of Americans were OK with before finding out that the Russians had the bomb using them as preemptive tools of war. In other words, tactical deployment of nuclear bombs. And it's and it's not just the public. I, I when I did research for this episode, I showed a bunch of people this quote because it blew my mind. It's Air Force Chief of Staff, uh, Nathan Twining, who eventually becomes the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is not like a voted position. It's just a senior position. Uh, He says this in 1965 regarding a plan from 1954 in a region of Vietnam called Dien Bien Phu. It's It's a plan championed by Nixon. John Foster Dulles, who is the Secretary of State uh, at the time and the guy that the airport is named after and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time. So they want to uh, give the French three nuclear missiles to attack the Viet Viet Minh in the west of Vietnam. And this is Nathan Twining with 10 years to think about the consequences of tactical nuclear war. And this is what he says. But this isn't even, to be clear, it's 10 years later, so it's 1965, but it's not even the heat of the Vietnam War. So he's just, like, spitballing. Here's what he says. I still think it would have been a good idea. Three small tactical A-bombs. It's a fairly isolated area, Dien Bien Phu. No great town around there, only communists and their supplies. You could take all day to drop the bomb. Make sure you put it in the right place. No opposition. Clear those commies out of there. And then the band could play the Marcel... And the French could march out of Den Ben Phu in fine shape. And those commies would say, well, these guys might do it again to us, so we better watch out. La Marseille is the, the French national anthem. Yeah, yeah, it's what they sing in um, Casablanca. Right, exactly. I, I, this second I saw this, like literally when I got home and was reading the first chapter of this book, I took a picture of this and I sent you a text with the picture that said this. Or if it had been said backstage at a wrestling show, we hit our finisher France gets the pin, their music hits, and everybody goes home happy. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like a guy talking about a wrestling match, which is to say it sounds like a guy not understanding the stakes of what he's saying, which is we're going to bomb, drop three nuclear bombs on these people. And they're just like small targeted type bombs. So it's not horrific. It's just like the best possible way to attack this. And it's like, um, and you brought up a good point, which is that like we let the president... And his group basically like book our main event feuds around the world. It's like, this is crazy. And this is, thankfully, it never got to the point where it was actually going to happen because the French rejected it three separate times. The French prime minister was like, no, you're crazy. (laughs) The the British wouldn't let us use their, their airspace to 
drop the bombs and Congress wouldn't allow it. So that's really the reason we didn't drop new. And that sounds like a lot, but it's really a not, uh, not a lot considering the people that were championing this. Those lame Europeans wouldn't let us. Yeah. And it's just like, it's something that we're going to come back to over and over again, which is that like, there is no concept of the stakes of what they're talking about, which is like, that is the crux of why people are wrestling fans, but it is really remarkable to see the eventual chairman of the joint chiefs of staff just be so blinded by the kayfabe of what his world is. It, it's thinking about things in terms of victory, right? And that's not really how you can, uh, that's not really how you can uh, uh, act in the world in a decent way. <laughs> if you're focused in, you know, this is how we win. This is how we make sure us and our allies look good. And this is how we can make sure that the problem is handled. Like when, when problems are handled with quote unquote military efficiency, like that does not have a positive complementary connotation, does it? When you say things are executed with military proficiency, it means done very well, but done very ruthlessly. There's no like making sure that the the people in Den Bien Phu evacuated. Like he says it, but he doesn't actually care. And it's three. It's not one. It's three tactical bombs. And that's what's scary to me. And the fact that he had 10 years to think about that. It, that is from a, um, I think it's called the John Foster Dulles um, Oral History Project. And it's literally people from Prince, a doctor from Princeton going to Nathan Twining and being like, so remember Dan Ban Fu? What did you think about it? And he's just like, we should have nuked those commies. They're not people, first of all, but they're, they're like characters in a story. Like they're not communists. They're people who are communist. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like, uh, I compare it almost to like, this view of the world is almost like Power Rangers. Where like there's there's you know Ho Chi Minh the big evil communist he's like uh, the giant enemy but then they treat it like everybody else in Vietnam is a putty you know what I mean like it's like no 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 like every citizen of these communist countries does not act as a willing henchman for their you know their their leader who we are idealistically against or to use a, another analogy it's like the Beagle Boys in Ducktales you know what I mean it's like there's the yeah, there, there's the main villain who's plotting everything, but they've sub, sub, subcontracted all their detail work to the Beagle Boys this month. Like, but it's such a crazy way to look at the world where like anybody who's even vaguely in the same space is is therefore like a, a underling of this person who we can therefore make a target as well. It's a perfect example of the like concepts of groupthink and mob mentality. We're eventually going to do a full episode on this, but a lot of what the power, especially of modern wrestling, comes from their frame, ability to frame the discussion. And all the communist, anti-communist like fever is about is the how much better conservatives and Republicans were at framing the debate of communism. They framed it as a professional wrestling show. And what's crazy is they're doing this, especially now. So, so you have 1953, 54 when uh, things are heating up in, in Vietnam, but not with us necessarily. And while this is happening, and, and this is post right after the Korean War. So, um, so like we're, we're weary of the, not the Chinese, but like the, the People's Republic of China, that brand of communism, uh, which is different or it starts to be different at this point because the, what's of the, it's called the Sino-Soviet split. And uh, it happens in large part because basically, I don't want to say Khrushchev turns 
the USSR face, but he like stops them from being actively heel. Right. Yeah. I mean, particularly Stalinism uh, was a form of communism that seemed extra horrible here in the U.S. I mean, when you had leaders like Lenin or Ho Chi Minh or Mao, you know, they had a certain level of genuine charisma and a vision that they at least paid enough lip service to that, you know, people really believed in it. But Stalinism was, number one, brutal, you know, with forced migrations and forced labor camps like we'd seen from the Nazis in World War II, but also really, really bureaucratic, right, where there were things like uh, bread lines and, you know, having to uh, wait for months to hear from various ministries uh, about, you know, what you needed to get. So it was both the kind of brutality of fascism, but also this just bureaucracy that we thought was just a major inconvenience. Like it, part of the problem was the brutality and part of the problem was it just didn't jive with the way that we like to do business. Oh yeah. That is absolutely a hundred percent. Like the most, that's what Reagan will, who we'll get to realize is that's what scared us is the idea that it, he tells a joke. I, I don't have the clip for it, but he tells a joke about um, it taking 10 years to get a car in Russia. And it's just about bureaucracy. Like, it's so much better here for all the... We'll get into Reagan. I, I have a long, <laughs> sordid history with Reagan. Uh, but he he's the one that figures out, like, the evolution of the anti-communist thing is to... Once you move past what what it was now, which was uh, st as they move past during the uh, Sino-Soviet split, they they have this kind of baby face turn that the Nixon, uh, not the Nixon, sorry, the Eisenhower administration doesn't totally acknowledge. But there is definitely this like easing of tensions. It's not quite detente. Detente happens later. Uh, what we commonly believe to be detente. Um, and basically, what Khrushchev does is uh, he cuts a promo on Stalin and uh, his ists. Uh, and we actually have a clip of that speech right now. Now, as far as the Jeff Jarrett's of the world are concerned, you know how Jeff spells his name? That's J-E-double-F. Well, you know what? Hmm. I would suspect that we'd spell it a different way after tonight. That would be capital G, double O, double N, double E. Gone. No, I'm kidding. We don't. We, we don't have a, because it's literally known as the secret speech. Like it was not planned. He just dropped a promo. And actually, this is my favorite part of this, uh, of the, the Khrushchev speech is uh, the official name of the report he's reading during that he's referring to during the speech is called on the cult of personality and its consequences. <laughs> like He shades Stalin so hard. And I think it's like, um, what's weird is because they, step back from the stuff that we really hated, the bureaucracy and, and things like that. We kind of don't know how to deal with it. So we engage in what's called, commonly called brinksmanship, which is basically like doing the thing where you stick your finger in front of somebody's face and go, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Um, it, it also reminds me of uh, Hogan in the Hogan Savage feud where he's like constantly doing shit that would clearly agitate any normal person. But since Randy Savage is crazy, it makes it 10 times worse. Like that, just watch, just reading on it, just the shit we would do to like push people is just so like bully heel trying to get a wrestle, like a championship match. 
they're the bad guys and all they're well they're not the bad guys they're the antagonist every single time basically um i i know i said at the outset the cold war is the most wrestling thing possible the most wrestling specific event i think is probably the cuban missile crisis because it's all about that showdown and and to give people a really quick understanding of uh the bay of uh, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm going to start real quick with the Bay of Pigs. So basically, Bay of Pigs is uh, General Batista in the uh, 1930s becomes shadow president for a couple of terms. He wins in 50. He uh, Sorry, in 40. He creates a constitution, and then he runs again in 52. He's going to lose, so basically he says, fuck this, and takes over the, the country. Um, in 1956, Castro comes back. Uh, they start a movement. It's called the July 26th movement. And uh, eventually they take over in 59, which, uh, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that happens in there, but that's a separate episode, to be honest. And while this is happening, uh, we <laughs> decide it's a good idea to get a bunch of people that have been pushed out of the country by Castro to try to invade Cuba. And uh, David, how do you think that goes? I am going to guess poorly. Yeah, yeah, they do not get over. They, 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 they like, they job pretty hard. And uh, while this is happening, too, um, Kennedy, who literally ran on this shit, uh, literally ran on the missile gap, decides that um, they're going to move some nuclear missiles to Turkey and Italy. And um, little, I don't know how well people know their geography, but Turkey is very, very very close to russia um some would say too close to hug with nuclear arms (laughs) so basically all of this shit leads to the cuban missile crisis which is so inevitable the only thing that is surprising about the cuban missile crisis happening is that we didn't get blown off the face of the earth and what i think is interesting in particular about the cuban missile crisis is how much kayfabe plays a part in the like narrative from this specific let's call it a match around both khrushchev and kennedy because kennedy is basically treated like a hero but it's really khrushchev who does a lot of the like heavy lifting in terms of solving the problem like uh here is khrushchev um khrushchev's letter it's called the soft offer uh to JFK in the lead up to the resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, it's actually Robert McNamara, who, like I said, is the Secretary of Defense, uh, reading the letter during the movie Fog of War. We and you ought not pull on the ends of a rope, which you have tied the knots of war. Because the more the two of us pull, the tighter the knot will be tired. And then it will be necessary to cut that knot. And what that would mean is not for me to explain to you. I have participated in two wars and know that war ends when it has rolled through cities and villages everywhere sowing death and destruction for such is the logic of war if people do not display wisdom they will clash 
like blind moles. And then mutual annihilation will commence. Yeah, he's pretty blatant or no, he's pretty direct about what he thinks the consequences are because Khrushchev on some level understands what nobody else in this situation does, which is the actual consequences of war. And he's the only one acknowledging them. I think it's really interesting that one thing that he kind of calls out there directly is if this comes to blows, we both know it was your fault. That's something that's really out there that it's like, you're the one who's really pushed this issue globally about, you know, anti-communism and about not allowing the Soviet empire to grow. And if it becomes, if we come to a conflict, it will be because you were over aggressive. And like you said, you know, it, it was a big part of Kennedy baby-facing himself uh, the way that he threatened to close the gaps and, you know, keep Russia at bay. And I think that uh, what Khrushchev really calls out there is kind of, you know, the same, uh, the, the same rhetoric that you have baby-faced yourself in is actually a very aggressive, you know, hawkish behavior. And you need to kind of step back and realize that if we come to blows, it will be because of you. And it's one of the things I've heard multiple historians talk about that, you know, if not for the Kennedy assassin assassination, what would our evaluation be of his handling of the Cold War and how it's very different because of the fact that he was assassinated. But I think it's very kind of incisive by Khrushchev there that he just kind of points out, you know, that like we think of the Cold War, especially in the U.S. as being an ideological war between the uh, between the U.S. and capitalism and the USSR and communism. But like, really, it was the U.S.'s pretty single-minded focus on not allowing other markets around the world to, quote-unquote, fall to communism. And I think Khrushchev called that out really effectively there. Yeah, and, and like you were saying, he baby-faces himself—Kennedy uh, does. Khrushchev loses his job because he solved, for all intents and purposes, played a major role in solving the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. He became a laughingstock in both Russia and the U.S. ultimately. Like, he really lost face. Yeah, it's crazy because if you look at um, – Dean Rusk is the he's the secretary of the state at the time, is the one who says the really famous where eyeball to eyeball and the other fellow just blinked. The other fellow was 750 miles away. And um, a lot of people, like you were saying, historians look at this way differently because what they see with Kennedy – is a guy who just is in over his head to a certain extent. Not that Khrushchev isn't also, but Khrushchev has the, the, the awareness, like the ring awareness, I guess you would say, to be like, whoa, this is really serious. Let's all calm down. And Kennedy doesn't. Like when people call Kennedy, when Eisenhower and Truman call Kennedy, he lies. And I understand why. I don't. In other words, I'm not trying to make Kennedy out to be the bad guy in this situation. What I'm saying is, is that, when this happened, this more so than any other thing is the choice we made as people to go with like professional wrestling our lives as opposed to like actually dealing with shit. We didn't go, oh my God, we almost had nuclear war. I mean, we did, but we didn't do it the way we needed to. And I, I think for me, that's like what led to the late 19th, not the late 1960s, really the second half, if not most of the 1960s, this is really weird time where basically we're like totally cool with Russia because after the, um, 
or not totally cool. That's a really big exaggeration. <laughs> we are, uh, there's a lot of relaxing of tensions. Um, we set up, uh, because one of the big things that happens during the Cuban Missile Crisis is we can't really talk to each other. Like, if, if you're, you may have noticed when McNamara said, he says, like, he sends the first letter. Like, he literally sent him a telegram that was like, don't nuke us. <laughs> so they, they set up a uh, direct line of communication. It's called the Washington-Moscow Hotline. And it's literally like, it's not literally a red phone, but it's like literally a secure room where you can call the USSR if shit's going down. So we're dealing with that. We're dealing with the direct aftermath of almost nuclear war while we're like building up to and eventually entering the Vietnam War, which leaves us in this like place where we really hate Russia, but we aren't fighting them. And we've blacklisted a bunch of people for like agreeing with being fellow travelers, basically but we're fighting an actual war against actual communists. Like the, the Stalinists your grandparents warned you about is, is basically what the, 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 not the Chinese, because the Vietnamese and the Chinese are different. They, the Vietnamese were helped out by the Chinese, but the Vietnamese had been fighting the Chinese for centuries. Like, I was going to say, there's also a huge gap in terms of the aggressiveness and uh, ease of seeing someone as an enemy when you're talking about the difference between a country going through a civil war and revolution versus a country throwing out colonial oppressors. When you're the U.S., throwing out colonial oppressors feels a lot more dangerous and close to home than, uh, than you know, 10-year civil war followed by revolution. Yeah. And so we get this, like, I, what I, I call a listless in the... We have notes for this episode. I don't know if you guys noticed. Uh, and in it, I... I, I this just struck me. It was like we we just didn't have people to write things about, uh, write things. We were worried about the things we were writing about and just kind of didn't want to f- actually deal with the real things were happening. So these are the best picture winners from 1964, meaning the movie came out and was award. The movie was awarded in 1964 uh, to 1970. They are in order: My Fair Lady, The Sound of Music. A Man for All Seasons, In the Heat of the Night, Oliver, and Midnight Cowboy. And like, those are basically three musicals, A Man for All Seasons, which you called like a historical drama. What was the exact word you used? It's about, it's about uh, Thomas More in England and his conflicts with Henry VIII. So it's, it's like a historical drama, but there's also, it's very transparently uh, religious as well. So it's kind of a faith-based historical drama, I guess we'd say today. But it's not, in other words, it's not um, an allegory for like the times per se, is it? Like I would say to some degree, maybe it's about, it, it is about speaking truth to power, but it's, they are very, very oblique in, in approaching it that way, I guess. You know what I mean? As opposed to, yeah. As opposed to like in the heat of the night. Yeah. Which is like, very specifically about like nineteen late nineteen sixties America, like, and and then you have Oliver, which is another musical. Like they have Heat of the Night in the Heat of the Night, and then Oliver is the other. And it's just these movies that are so explicit. Like The Sound of Music is the most escapist. I understand they're with Nazis and stuff like that. They literally but, escape. <laughs> yeah, they, exactly. It is literally the most escapist possible movie. That's not to say that these aren't good films. I mean. They might not be, but like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
I know you're a Mike question the great Rex Harrison. <laughs> I was going to say, I know you're a Mike Fair Lady fan. Uh, <laughs> but no, to me, it's really interesting that you have like what's considered by a lot of people to be this like time of crazy civil unrest. It, considered by people this time it is a time of crazy civil unrest and like all this interesting art is happening the like consensus best things are cons- are like the most escapist bullshit possible and it's it, and this is something we we talked about a bunch when we were like talking about this episode is that like and i think you said it best is that the cold war it's about creating like heroes and villains essentially right oh yeah absolutely i mean it's like think of like the iliad we're creating heroes and villains on an epic level here and i don't mean just epic in the way it was used like five years ago i mean like literally epic as in typical of epic poetry you know having uh having the very uh the very clearly drawn lines having the characters who kind of grow to almost mythic proportions who come to mean so much more than their name. And, and as you keep coming back to the concept of stakes, this idea that the stakes are so impossibly high that whoever's on the losing side will, will be like beyond dead and dishonored. Yeah, which is the part that's super interesting about Dr. Strangelove, which also comes out during this time. So it's not like, you know what I'm saying? Like, um... But with Dr. Strangelove, the biggest fear, like the clip we played at the beginning of the episode is literally about Russians having more sex than us. And that's our great fear. Like when they're talking about a mine shaft gap, they're literally talking about, I think, uh, breed more prodigiously than us is like exactly the word that George Patton's <laughs> character uses. Like there is this real... Oh, uh, he, uh, he played George Patton. George C. Scott. Oh, uh, George C. Scott. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Turking, Turdington or something like that. Uh, I'm bad with names. I barely got David's name right. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that, again, the, the, stakes, uh, the stakes part of this is important, but it's also about attaching ourselves to ideas of heroism and villainy. And that's really important because like comics go, comics and movies go one way where we're like movies really, especially like the 1970 winner is Midnight Cowboy. And a lot of the movies in the 1970s are much more auteur kind of things. And comics start to in the early 1970s um, get, because that's really when we start to like get past all of our, I don't want to say get past, but when we start to be able to like think about, let's say communists in a way that's both like real anger, but not wanting to murder them anger. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think we started to express more and more anger at the situation. When you start to get into those more auteur driven kind of grittier movies in the 70s, I mean, you you start off with things like you said, Midnight Cowboy. And by the end of the 70s, you're seeing movies like Deer Hunter. And like, I know Deer Hunter took a lot of heat for uh, portraying communists and Vietnamese people in a very negative light. But really, Deer Hunter isn't about necessarily the horrors of war or of conflict on their own. It's like about what that mindset does to you when you have to get back home. That we made ourselves into heroes and we made them into villains, but there was a significant price paid for doing that for so long. And I think that's some of the angst and frustration you start to see in the movies that come out throughout the 70s. Not just the horrors of war, but the horrors of what having the wartime mindset at home for going on 30 years at that point is like. Yeah, and and even the like stuff that really deals with, and it happens more in the 80s, like the Reagan, but like Red Dawn and shit like that. When we do not, not Nazi stuff, when we do communist stuff, 
it gets wild. Uh, it is like hyper violent, crazy shit. Like we have this like visceral need to murder. I can't, no, I'm kidding. No, Americans like the idea of movie violence and filmed violence that's not real, so they can like experience it without actually having to engage with it on like an intellectual level. A great example of, of what you were just talking about is the James Bond movies. Like Dr. No came out in 62, I think, which is the same year as the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, you know, uh, the James Bond movies were a very sterilized, positively fun, sort of positively spun rather. Uh, well, they were fun as well. They were positively fun, put that on the poster. Uh, but they were a positively spun look at Cold War violence with some distance. It's like the joke that Michael Caine makes in the Goldmember movie about, okay, this is the time where each of you runs at me one at a time and I knock you down with a single karate chop. You know, that we tried to create at first sort of a silly way to look at that with the violence of like, like I said, like a James Bond movie or like an Adam West Batman movie. And that was kind of the attempt to create heroes who engaged in violent activity, but were fun to watch. And that worked for a while. And then we kind of burned out on it. Like I said, we get into the grittier movies. And I think it's important, that, uh, interesting that you use both James Bond, who is much more of like what what would be now considered like a, um, a cinematic universe, right? Like they, James Bond was basically the first cinematic universe where like different characters played and they were all in this, like it is the, the, the first one that has like real continuity, but, through a long string of movies, it is television-y in its own way. And I, I feel like the Batman movie is like that kind of campy violence. But that's also like, a these are both basically, it's Bond, Batman, and the Beatles, right? Yeah. Um, and, and those two are basically like, Bond is this weird like movie that's really a television series that comes out every couple of years, like a new episode comes out every couple of years. And then you literally have a TV movie of a television show as like television was just like it's crazy the a-team in the 80s and shit like that it's just like it's crazy isn't it it's kooky explosions yeah and movies are like stuntmen stunt flying away but being actually but looking not horrifically burned <laughs> our need to make villains and heroes and do so in a way without stakes when coupled with we as americans really really hate communism like so much more than everybody else. The book I mentioned earlier, uh, Whitfield, uh, in it, he talks about um, basically one fifth of the voters in Italy and France are communists. And in America, the same number of people that are in the Finnish Lutheran evangelical church are card carrying communists. And this is like before any of the stuff with McCarthy, like, no one was a communist here. Um, there's a bunch of uh, like writers from the time who are basically like, we agree that communism is bad. And for all the reasons we talked about, like all the differences between Stalinism and communism and socialism, which is like a completely, to me, a different thing. Like we, we just hated Soviets and communism so much more than we hated the like more weirdly the more Stalinist stuff, but also weird re relative to the rest of the world. And there's that's there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is Yalta, which made it super weird, and that always happens. You 
always after these like giant wars or even small wars when you try to like reconfigure where people should be it never ends well it's kind of like when uh what is it battle bowl when they make all of the guys tag with people they're they're not actually teammates with (laughs) it's a lethal lottery nick that's what it was yeah it was the lethal lottery where they literally just like I break kayfabe and are like literally had a lottery to be like oh bob and john are together and it's like bob and john have never worked together before this is going to be terrible <laughs> um also starcade was never the same yeah exactly <laughs> oh god oh jim crockett uh <laughs> or was that already wcw Uh, I think that was just after it became WCW. They started doing that stuff. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and like I said, so in Europe, communism is just like a normal fact of everyday life. But here it isn't. And and because we have this distance, we can just make it into this crazy boogeyman. Communists can be anything. They can even be a boat. (laughs) And and, uh, for... Stalinism, like you mentioned earlier, we didn't want to have markets open to communism, but really what we didn't want was Stalinism, which is weird because the Soviets weren't practicing Stalinism. They were just like trying to go along to get along and also um, stockpile as much bombs as they could. Like, let's not act like Russia is like a bunch of sweethearts. Like, I am personally, I think it's fair to say, glad that we won the Cold War. (laughs) Like, like I understand where a lot of the, like, anti-communist fever comes from, especially when you don't actually understand what communism is. And I think we just had a perfect combination of things that made it so, like, Soviet communism was extra bad, even though the thing we really didn't like was Chinese slash Vietnamese slash Korean communism. And because we can't, like, it's a cognitive dissonance thing, there's almost no, in wrestling, because this is when you start to see um, communist wrestlers, like uh, Boris Malenko, right? Uh, he was in Florida? Yeah, definitely Florida. He he had been, so for whatever, 10 years previously, he had been named Otto von Krupp and was playing a Nazi, which were kind of stock character heels in wrestling in like, you know, the 50s and 60s, because we all knew Nazis were bad and they were easy to boo. But then literally like during the Cuban Missile Crisis in the fall of 62, he reemerges as Professor Boris Malenko, an evil Soviet. <laughs> <Just> so good. <laughs> It's just like the perfect, you know what I, it's just the most seamless transition. It really shows you that even though uh, wrestling is kind of stereotyped as lowbrow and wrestlers aren't necessarily thought of as great intellectuals, uh, there is uh, a lot of thought (laughs) that goes into this. And they really, the wrestling business has always really just like had its eyes on the newspaper and, you know, its ears to the railroad track, so to speak, just kind of subtly noticing the ways culture is shifting and reflecting them back as quickly and offensively as possible. 